Friends, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read starting in verse 19. We're picking Paul up in the middle of a sentence. It's a prayer that he's praying for the church. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. Paul prays. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we're praying about a prayer. We're praying that Paul's prayer for us and for the church would become evident in our body, that we would know and feel and experience and utilize and live in what is the immeasurable power that is at work in this place. Would you do that? That would be a miraculous thing in our church body. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, you guys know that we are starting a new chapter in the life of this church. We're a very young church, and now we're in a new space, and that could make us susceptible to an identity crisis. Who exactly are we and what is God calling us to do in this neighborhood? We're going to spend the next five weeks answering those questions. And we're going to do it by using that great line from the Nicene Creed that we just quoted together. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We're going to take each word in that sentence and we're going to support it from the book of Ephesians and we're going to understand its relevance for us as the church today. Today's word that we're choosing from that sentence is the very last word, the word we must start with, and that is the word church. What is the church? Who is the church? What do we need to know about the church? Well, a very simple kind of working definition of the church is this. Everyone who has put their faith in Christ together with their children. Everyone who's trusted in Christ, everyone who's born again, together with their children. So Ephesians 1.1, Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus, which is the same thing as saying to the church that is in Ephesus. And in chapter 6, he includes their children into the mix of who he's addressing. So simply define the church as every believer with their children. Now, if our goal today was simply to define the church we'd be done here. We could actually stop the sermon here. We could get up. We could run to Chipotle. We could beat the college students, and that would be fantastic. But that's actually not our goal. Our goal is not just to get a quaint definition of the church. Our goal is to feel the heat of the church. We're not done with Ephesians chapter 1 until we are dumbstruck with the power that stands behind the body of Christ. That's what we're after today. That's what we want to understand today. And to do that, we need a little bit of context about Paul and who exactly he's writing to. Paul, he's writing to the church that's gathered in Ephesus. That's a city in modern-day Turkey. 
And the city of Ephesus was a very powerful city. It actually had a lot going for her. She was a large commercial city. She had a very profitable seaport. She was the home to the temple of Artemis, which is one of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. And so the citizens of Ephesus, you can picture, they kind of had a big head. And they kind of had a swagger of people who think too much of themselves and the city that they hail from kind of like our friends from Greenville. It's like, let's just take it down a notch. This ain't Asheville, okay? Okay, so that's what the Ephesians look like. And the city was not just important in its own right, it was also important for what she represented because she was the capital of a Roman province, which meant the Roman Empire stood behind her. In Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the Roman Empire dominated the known world. Her power, her army, her gods, her expansion, it felt invincible and inevitable. Nothing could stand against this empire. And wherever you would have gone as a citizen in Ephesus, you would have been reminded of Rome and her power. It was on your coins, it was on your calendar, it was in statues within the city. You would always be reminded of the power of Rome. Archaeologists, they recently dug up an Ephesian house and they found written on a wall, Rome, the ruler of all, your power will never die. I mean, that kind of talk makes Americans look modest, right? I mean, this was an idolatry of a nation. In the middle of that sea of pomp and power, you've got this poor little tiny church of Ephesus. Nobody really knows she's there, and nobody really cares that she's there. We know that church plants in Paul's day, they were very small affairs. I mean, we're talking about maybe anywhere from 20 to 60 people who were meeting in one house or two houses. That's what churches look like in Paul's day. And so to look out over this crowd of people and to think about the new space we have, this would have been a cathedral in Paul's day. They couldn't have imagined a church of this size. The Ephesian church, up against these odds, felt incredibly lost and small. And actually, to make matters worse, not only does she feel small, but Paul is writing to her from a a Roman prison cell. And so Rome has exercised her power, not just over the known world, but over the church itself by making the Ephesians feel their smallness and putting their apostle and church planter in prison. That feeling is being reinforced again and again and again. Now the reason I'm belaboring this point to show us just how small the church was and just how big and bad the Roman Empire was is because I want to set the the playing field for us today. Today's church, we have resources beyond the Ephesians' wildest dreams and yet we still feel small in a world that is hostile to Jesus. I don't think any of the people who are visiting this morning who are with us today are going to walk out of here and describe Columbia Presbyterian Church as a place of power, 
right? There's going to be different adjectives that come to mind, but power is not one of them. We're a very sweet body. We have a very nice space. We have a very mature and wise pastor. I mean, we've got some things that are going for us, but the word power, that's not the word that's going to immediately come to mind. If we start a conversation about the Big C Church challenging principalities and powers and changing the world, all of a sudden we feel very small against that task. All of a sudden our weakness is very acute. All of a sudden we look around and it feels like we don't have the right people, the right resources, the right courage to be able to do God's work in God's way. We can think of all the things that we're missing. Well, Paul, he he knows that about the church. He knows that about the Ephesian church. He knows that about the church in Columbia. He knows that. And probably a lot of days in his Roman prison cell, he felt that smallness too. And so Paul actually does the only thing he knows how to do when his back is against the wall and he's up against incredible odds. And that is he prays. All of chapter 1 in Ephesians is a prayer for the church, but we want to focus at just the back end of that prayer. Now, all of us are probably familiar with the snowball effect. You've heard that phrase, the snowball effect. It kind of comes from cartoons where... In a cartoon world, you could take a snowball and you could put it on top of a hill that's blanketed in snow and you could give it a push and you know what happens. It starts to roll, it starts to get bigger and bigger, it gains speed, it gains mass, it gains momentum, and then it crushes Elmer Fudd at the bottom of the mountain, right? We've all seen that in cartoons. In fact, I just ordered a book this weekend which is entitled The Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. Now, the man is worth $80 billion, and so that title makes absolute sense to us. Whether we're talking about cartoons or compound interest, we, we get the metaphor of the snowball effect. That's what Paul's doing here, except forget the snowball. Paul walks to the top of a mountain with a boulder, and he places it there. In verse 19, he says, this is what I'm going to pray for. This is how I'm going to build my prayer. This is what I want the church to see and experience. Verse 19, I'm praying that you, church, might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We've thrown out the snowball. We've put a boulder here. We want the church to know immeasurable power that is behind us. And then in this prayer, he gives that boulder a push and it begins to roll down the mountain and it's going to be impossible for us to stop. Paul says, you church have the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. That's the currency of power we're talking about. And we think, whoa, hang on a second. I didn't know we were going to start with the resurrection. I thought he would start somewhere with, you have the same power that Jesus had when he turned water into wine or when he walked on water. But he goes for the moon and says, the kind of power you have that we're talking about is the power of the resurrection. 
And it feels like we should stand here in awe and just take verse 19 and just study it in depth because he's saying that there's a power at work that can make a three-day dead man get out of a tomb and walk, but we can't stop here because the boulder is beginning to roll and pick up speed. Verse 20, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead also seated him at God's right hand. So we're not just talking about power over life and death. Now we're talking about power over the dimensions of heaven and earth. It is a power that can elevate Jesus to the highest office in the universe. And it feels like we should stop there of all places to try to get our minds around that power, but we can't because the prayer continues and the boulder rolls. And we read in verse 21, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. At this point, Paul is putting the cookies of eschatological supremacy on the bottom shelf for the church. Every name, every authority, every power, every angel, every demon, every principality, every ideology, every structure that was and that is and that is to come is subject to the person of Christ and his power. And if we couldn't stop at the resurrection, and we couldn't stop at the ascension, surely we should stop here and understand just what on earth that kind of power means for the church. But you cannot stop the boulder that's rolling down the mountain. Finally, he says in verse 22, not only is Jesus supreme over all forces that are past and present and future, but all enemy forces are now under his feet. If verse 21 is Jesus' power in supremacy, verse 22 is Jesus' power in his dominance. The book of Psalms supports this. The book of Psalms has a rich tradition of describing the Messiah as one who will start kicking butt and taking names. That's all over the psalmody. Think about Psalm 2.12. Now remember, this was the hymn book for Israel. Like you passed out this hymn book and said, everybody, let's open to Psalm number 2. And this is what you would have read. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus' enemies, they don't stand a chance. That's the kind of power we're talking about. That's the kind of power that is at stake in the person of Christ and that is given to the church. You read that kind of momentum, you hear that kind of power build over those verses and you're out of breath. You watch it gather speed and momentum and mass and Jesus' power appears to be this unstoppable, majestic, supreme force and we are absolutely in awe of the power of Jesus. When I say these things, I kind of feel like the Apostle Peter who was there at Jesus' transfiguration And he got to see a moment of Jesus' glory. 
And then he just felt so out of place, he just started talking to fill the air. He just put words in the air when what's really in order is silent reverence. This is the power of Christ. This is the power at his disposal. But then you have this remarkable turn in verses 22 and 23. Look at this with me. After you've been overwhelmed with the power of Jesus, he says this. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, it's one thing to learn that somebody in Colombia won the lottery. It's another thing to learn that that person was your mother. It's one thing to marvel at Jesus' power from afar. We see it and we're in awe of it and we're silenced before the magnitude of the power that he has. It's another thing to see that Jesus brings that power to the church to use at our disposal for our identity and our mission in this city. That power in Ephesians 1 is here in this room right now, and it is greater than the sum of the parts of the people and their spiritual gifts and their time and their money. It is Christ's power for the church at our disposal. If that's true, Columbia Presbyterian Church, I ask you, we're just one drop a little C church of the great, expansive, worldwide, big C church of Christ. But I ask you, based on Ephesians chapter 1, tell me one thing God cannot do in and through the church. God raised Jesus from the dead. Tell me one place that is outside Jesus' jurisdiction. God is the one who elevated Jesus to his right hand. Tell me one faith he can't restore, one relationship he can't mend, one addiction he can't overcome. His name is above every name, past, present, and future. Tell me one soul that Jesus through the church cannot save. Tell me one church that can't be planted. Tell me one missionary that cannot be sent because all his enemies are subject to him. That's the nature of the power that is in this place. We started with a perfectly good definition of the church. It'll work in a pinch if you need it. It's all believers and their children. That's totally fine. But what about this definition from Ephesians 1? What about the definition that this is the body of Christ's death-defying, body-ascending, universally-reaching, enemy-vanquishing power? That's what the church is. It is the power of Christ at the disposal of the church for the benefit of this city and the world. That is the definition of the church we're going to hang our hats on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we beg you to make this power, this immeasurable greatness of power, relevant and palpable in this place. It's here 
It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him in heaven and put him above every other name. And when we walk without courage, when we walk in fear and cowardice, when we walk in doubt, lacking the ability to see what you can and will do in our city, we don't know that that power sits in front of us. Would you move through this church and change this city for your kingdom, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.